Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. I don't know about you, but I'm worn out after this morning's sermon. But put your running shoes back on because we're going to do it again. Because uh, we got a good bit more stuff to cover. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, which is where I promised you we'd be spending some time this evening. Roman, Romans chapter 8. Uh, as a sort of a quick recap of this morning's, and I'm going to get through this in about 30 seconds. You're going to go, why didn't you do that this morning? But here we go. The recap from this morning is this. Death was a part of God's original plan in creation. It's one of the things we talked about this morning. Secondly, the consequence of sin was directly intended for Adam and Eve. It was not something that was an inheritable guilt or something that was passed down from generation to generation, including the world itself, that the world itself is not cursed because of the first sin, but it carried on as normal as God created it, because God created it with certain difficulties in it. And part of the reason I wanted to, to go through all of this is because I think it teaches us a lesson that God intends us for a different world, for a different existence than this one. God did not have a plan that was thwarted by man's sins, but he had a plan that was in place knowing man would sin, and that his creation reflects that. His creation was not one way and then all of a sudden another way. And so my wife and I were talking on the way home, as we typically do. See, y'all on the way home have conversations about, man, he was long-winded. My wife and I have the same conversation on the way home. But, but we also talk about the concept. And she kind of helps me walk through anything that I forgot to say or anything I wasn't clear about. And she said, well, maybe you should put together a little bit of a timeline for us in trying to understand what you're saying about infinity and mortality. And so I did that. Uh, basically, God creates the world as a mortal existence. Uh, it is a place where our spirits are in, in, given a body in which we can live mortally. Man had the possibility in flesh to have longevity due to the tree of life, but he was not created with longevity or intended to live forever. But man sinned and had personal consequences as a result of that sin. For instance, punishment, which we talked about, I think, in detail this morning. Separation from God, also we talked about this morning. He had no more access to the tree of life that gave him mortal or physical longevity, and he created a need for redemption, a need God knew he would need, a need that God had already planned for. Because before sin happened, God, knowing sin was going to happen, provided a plan to redeem us. It was always God's plan to redeem us, knowing what we would do. It was his eternal purpose, as we pointed out this morning, and Part of the reason I think that is so important is because it displays for us God's love, which was why he created us in the first place. It displays for us his character, 
We see that over in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's creation displays not just his divine power, but also his character. And I think one of the parts of his creation that displays that for us is the plan he put in place. It also shows us his redemption. So man was infinite in a sense, before sin, because he had access to God and access to the tree of life. But once man sinned and ruined his access to God and his access to the tree of life, he is now mortal, not because he is transformed from, in, from some infinite form to some finite form, from immortal to mortal, but because he had always been mortal. And God restricted from him the very thing that gave his body immortality, uh, which is what we see there at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Now, the one thing that probably many of you go, well, what about Romans chapter 8? Doesn't Romans chapter 8 teach the traditional understanding of the fall of man? And that's why I want to turn there and look at that this evening. Romans chapter 8, Hopefully you're already there. For the creation, this is verse 19. We're going to read 19 down through 25. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. All right. This is kind of the linchpin passage that a Calvinist will use to teach the fall of man and the redemption of man, uh, at least from a Calvinistic point of view. And it, I'm not one of those that says, well, if this religious group believes this about this verse, well, then it must be wrong because they believe it. Calvinists believe a lot of right things. So just because Calvinists believe it doesn't mean it's wrong. But it is interesting to me to reconsider this passage of Scripture in light of the things that we talked about this morning. Because how does this passage of Scripture work with the concepts I just mentioned in the introduction. Well, the typical explanation for this passage of Scripture is that the world is, was created perfect without natural disasters. Uh, there were no thorns and thistles. That was created after Adam's sin because that was part of the punishment. He would uh, work to grow crops, but instead it would produce thorns and thistles. And you don't read about thorns and thistles before that point Therefore, they probably did not exist, according to the traditional view. Uh, along with that, they would argue that there were natural disasters, no, no natural disasters before the fall of man. So no hurricanes, 
No, no floodings, no big rainstorms that came. And oftentimes that is supported by the idea of the garden described as being watered from the ground up, from the uh, dew that would rise out of the ground. And you don't read of rain until you get to the time of Noah. And so the assumption is that, no, that rain did not exist before the time of Noah. Uh, that also means no earthquakes, no uh, just no natural disasters where the world is, is, is malfunctioning as uh, oftentimes it gets put. Um, they also believe there's no death before the fall of man. We talked about that again this morning. But once sin happened, it affected all of creation. So not only was there the consequence of death that spread to all men because of Romans chapter 5 verse 12, but you also now have the beginning of a fallen creation where there are storms and tornadoes and earthquakes and, and uh, floodings and all of those horrible things that happen in our world around us. Well, once the sons of God are revealed, excuse me, uh, this this passage is used because of that phrase the world was subjected to futility and so they take that phrase to mean when sin happened it caused the world to become worthless or futile and so that's how they make that relation here from Romans chapter 8 well uh, once the sons of God are revealed uh, depending on what you interpret that to mean, which we'll talk about in just a moment, uh, we'll no longer have such tragedy and on, it, uh, on this earth and that the earth will be, in a sense, set free. It will be rescued from its futile state, from its fallen state. Uh, all of a sudden, things are going to be better. And so that happens at the revealing of God's plan, maybe, uh, some have argued that maybe that happens upon the second coming of Christ, especially the premillennialists will argue that. Uh, when Armageddon happened, there's this seven years of tribulation, and at the end of the seven years, you'll have the thousand-year perfect earth kingdom that's set up where Jesus will sit on his throne in Jerusalem, and that thousand years of perfect earth where lion lies down with lamb will just be a, a wonderful place of a redeemed world. And then others would argue that it happens at the end of time. Well, here's some of my problems with that particular explanation of Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to go backwards because I think it will make more sense for you to go from the bottom up. First of all, I don't know that you can argue that the world is rescued in any of those senses. Okay, For instance, there are still natural disasters happening on earth today, right? So if we're talking about a fallen creation that is redeemed upon the revealing of the sons of God, that can't be Jesus because we still have a fallen creation according to their definition. Uh, so it can't be that. I don't think any of us are going to buy into the premillennial concept of the thousand-year perfect kingdom where lion is lying down with lamb. Uh, there are some who would argue that there is a redemption to the world in that heaven actually comes down from some sort of spiritual realm and is set up on earth and that we actually are redeemed and resurrected to continue living on earth but on a perfected heavenly earth of some form or fashion. Uh, I, I don't know how many of us buy into that. That is 
Uh, that's gaining popularity, but it is not, I think, probably what most of us would, would think. And then I have a little bit of a difficulty understanding, just, just me personally, how being destroyed works with being set free. Uh, it, you know, if, if, if I had somebody in prison, uh, they're in shackles and they're kind of tied up and and I tell them, okay, I'm going to come set you free. And what I do is I shoot them in the head. I don't know that they would have agreed that was being set free. It is, in a sense, destruction is being set free from bondage because you're no longer in bondage. But I don't know that that is what Paul means here when he says creation is eagerly awaiting and looking forward to being set free from this bondage to decay or bondage to corruption, depending on your version, when, when what he means is it's just destroyed. That, that seems a little difficult to me. Take a step back another one. We know sin happened, but as I argued this morning, I don't think sin affected the whole creation. Adam and Eve's sin didn't have some sort of domino effect on all of creation. We all sinned. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 12, uh, Adam sinned and, and brought death into the world. And we all experienced death because all sinned, not because Adam sinned. Uh, and those are two very different ideas. And again, I, I would argue, as I did this morning, that the world wasn't perfect before the fall of man. It already experienced natural disasters. It already had bad things that could happen on it because God didn't consider those things bad. We've looked at this passage before, but Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7. Here God speaking through Isaiah and saying some pretty amazing and astonishing things about himself, revealing truths about God and his nature, he says here, verse, I'll start back in verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light, I create darkness. I make success, I create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. So where did disaster come from? It comes from the Lord. It's something that God himself does. We know that God is in control of those natural disasters, is he not? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, God could have prevented natural disasters from happening uh, for those years that Adam and Eve were in the garden and the earth never experienced those things. I'm not denying God's power. Jesus proves it when he stills the storms and the waves, right? We know God had power over such things, but one of the reasons God had power over such things is because God was the creator of those things. We didn't create natural disasters as a consequence of sin. God created natural disasters, as we call them, because it is part of his creation. You look over in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 4. 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, notice the context here is that the earth continues on as it always has. It's cyclical. Things occur in repeated patterns because this is how God created it. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it returns to the place where it rises. The sun comes up, goes down every day. We've all experienced it since, for how long? Since the beginning, right? God created it that way. You read on, verse 6, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycle. The wind goes. The wind's always moving. Uh, that, that's just part of the way our world works, and it always has worked that way. You keep reading. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The water cycle. Uh, the, the water cycle has always been in place. It is something that God created as a part of our world. And I do understand that there is a time where there was a place on earth that was watered from the ground up, the Garden of Eden. But it does not indicate that that was the way the whole world was watered. It's describing Eden when it says that. And there's no reason to assume that the rest of the world didn't function as we know the world to function. Verse uh, 8, all things are wearisome. More than anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. What's the preacher's point? The world continues on as it always has. Everything's functioning the way it always has. Turn with me over to Job. Job chapter 38 and those powerful passages where God is describing and putting Job in his place by describing the things that he has done. And we won't read all of this, but I want you to notice here in chapter 38, verse 4 and 5, God shows that he created. I'm over in Psalm 38, and I started looking at it and went, that is not what I intended. Job 38, 4 and 5, where were you when I established the earth, God asked. Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Who, certainly you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? What's God saying? Who really knows how creation works? God, because he created. And you look down in verse 8 through 11, it talked about how God was the one who closed the sea behind the door and, and put its restrictions on it, put its limitations in place. Verse 22 through 24 talks about snow falling, that snow has been a part of our world, that God created it in the very beginning. You've got chapter, verse 25 down through 30, the idea of storms, that God created those storms from the very beginning. Verse 34 and 35, you've got the idea of, uh, again, storms. Who can, or can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? The implication is, no, you can't, but who can? The one who created it. 
the one who put those things in place from the very beginning. So if these assumptions about Romans 8 are wrong, what is the right understanding? I don't have a clue. Richard lied to you. I don't have all the answers. No, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you what I think is correct. The world was good and pronounced good by God, even with what we call natural disasters. It was part of the way God made our world function. And let me tell you why I think those things were good. Who do we call out for hope when a big storm comes up and we don't know where to turn? Who's the only one who can help us in those moments? God. If God created a perfect place where there was no reason to need him, would we know our need for him? I don't think we would. And I think that's why it's so important to notice this world was good even with natural disasters, even with cyclical nature, even with the way things have always functioned, that they always will function that way. He created it that way. He did place a small little location that we call paradise on earth, a garden in the land of Eden, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the world wasn't created to function the way it always functioned and the way that it still functions. Then sin happened. And sin, while it affected mankind, it opened the eyes of Adam and Eve, and yes, that is something that has been opened for all creation after them, or all, all of mankind after them. God gave Adam and Eve specific punishments but it also opened the door for us to know good and evil. We lost access to the tree of life because of Adam and Eve. And in that sense, yes, I, I think you can argue that death spread to all men, but not because we now went from immortal bodies to mortal bodies, but because now our mortal bodies have no choice but to experience decay and corruption. As God created us to do but since we're all sinners we all deserve that death anyway you know Adam and Eve they, they, they earned death that's what happened when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil they earned it until they earned death they had access to the tree of life they would not have experienced it but once they earned death, now it was their only option. And I think that understanding of the way God put things in place is a little more in keeping with the whole concept of God having a plan that necessitated us dying and even necessitated Jesus dying. So the futility of the world, if you'll turn back to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, again it says, For I can, uh, the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility. You've got to decide what that's talking about. And I'm going to argue that it is not the idea of a fallen uh, 
concept, the idea that it, it was uh, something not futile and then became futile because of sin, I, I, I have a hard time believing that. Here's one of the reasons I have a hard time believing it, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God caused the earth to be futile, the earth to be worthless, the earth to be purposeless. And that is a concept that you have uh, all through Scripture. You know, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the next verse say? And the earth was formless and void. And we talked about, when we went through the book of Genesis back months ago, so probably I'm not sure how many of you remember us talking about this, but the creation account that we have there in Genesis 1 is not necessarily an account of God putting all these pieces together. It's that God took what was purposeless and gave those things purpose. So he creates light, but it wasn't light that mattered as much as what mattered was that light became day and darkness became night. He put things in the sky, but the purpose of the things in the sky was to give us a way of telling time as we watch those things rotate and move. All of the things God created, God created purpose. But we, because of our sin, caused the earth to feel futile and purposeless. Turn with me over to, uh, hold your place there in Romans 8. We're coming right back to it. But Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. It's interesting to me, this little reading here in Jeremiah, which Paul would have been very familiar with, Paul knowing the scriptures, having been uh, raised in a Jewish school, taught by the best Jewish teacher, Gamaliel, would have been very familiar with the prophets. And he says here in Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse 23, I looked at the earth and it was formless and void. What does that make you think of? Genesis 1-2, right? Keep reading with me. I looked to the heavens and their light was gone. Uh, I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills shook. I looked and there was no human being. And all the birds of the sky had fled. I looked and the fertile field was a wilderness. All its cities were torn down because of the Lord and his burning anger. For this is what the Lord says. The whole land will be a desolation, but I will not finish it off. Because of this, the earth will mourn, the skies above will grow dark. I have spoken, I have planned, and I will not relent or turn back from it. This, every city flees, and the sound of the horsemen and the archer, they enter the thickets and climb among the rocks. Every city is abandoned, no inhabitant is left. And you, devastated one, what are you doing? That you dress yourself in scarlet and you adorn yourself with gold jewelry. That you enhance your eyes with makeup. You beautify yourself for nothing. Your lovers reject you. They intend to take your life. I hear a cry like a woman in labor. A cry of anguish, like one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hand. Woe is me, for my life is weary because of the murderers. 
Now that's an interesting passage that draws together two of the images that Paul uses over in Romans chapter 8. First, the idea of the world being futile or worthless or purposeless. And then the idea of a woman experiencing labor pains. He relates it to the world is experiencing labor pains. Well, what's Jeremiah talking about here? Jeremiah is talking about the fact that their sins have caused the world to, to really have no purpose. And I think that's what we're dealing with here in Romans chapter 8, if you flip back over there, is that the world, as it was created, felt no purpose because we as humans just sinned and sinned and sinned, and it made the world feel like it really wasn't doing anything. And so it's waiting for an, an explanation as to what its purpose is. It's waiting to, to be able to do something to glorify God. So when God revealed who, the sons, who his sons were, it caused the world to be rescued from this sense of futility to having a sense of purpose. He's personifying creation to say creation sitting around wondering what good it has done. And the truth is, the world by itself without God's plan does nothing. It's merely the, the, the platform for sin until God revealed his plan. When God revealed his plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus, when God revealed that mankind could be redeemed from sins, when God revealed that we have hope and salvation and redemption, and now the earth has not become the stage for sin, but the stage for God's redemption, it glorified that God was bringing good things to it. Not because it had some sort of fallen nature, but because it became the stage on which God's perfect plan was unfolded. And it sits around, just like we do, waiting for us to be fully revealed and redeemed. Now read it again with me with that in mind. For creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. It wants to see it happen. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruit, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees. Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. You put the whole context of Romans chapter 8 together. For instance, back in 12 and 13, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now there again, we've got this contrast between the mortal and the spiritual, the corruptible and the incorruptible. 
And that if we will give our attention, if we will recognize that while in this body we are dislocated, we are, no, we are not at home, we are not where we belong. And the reason this is not where we belong is because we've been adopted into the family of God. He says we can be sure, we can be certain the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are adopted. We are the sons of God that have been revealed. That's you and me. We are what the world has rejoiced over, anticipated, wanted to see, wanted to know, wanted to to have an understanding of what God's plan was. Well, when the world, the creation that had no purpose but a stage for sin saw that God was going to use this world as a stage for redemption to to show his plan that ended with us being adopted into his family well then it rejoiced it had labor pains until now Paul says because now it is seeing the birth of God's plan put in place it's seeing how it all works together and because of God's plan verse 24 and 25 now in this hope we were saved but hope that is not seen is not hope because who hopes for what is seen now if we hope for what we do not see we eagerly wait for it with patient we wait for the redemption that we know come the hope that we have because of God's plan you read on in the same way the spirit with ours helps us in our weakness Because we do not know what we should pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Because this world has been a stage for our redemption, we now have representation with God. What did we lose because of our sin? access to God what did we gain because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus access back to God and such access that we are even his children read with me verse 28 through 30 we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We read this passage this morning to point out the idea that Jesus, according to God's plan, was the first fruit. He was the first resurrected, which required death. That was always God's plan. But here's what I find interesting to look at it in the context of our re-examination of that passage in Romans 8. Is that the whole point of all of this was so that we could fully realize what it means to belong to God. That we're not just in some sort of casual relationship with God. No, 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 no. We are the culmination of a plan that has been in place since before time began. We are what God intended all along. And in case that's not clear enough, 
Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We won't read this whole thing because I, I really could read uh, verse 1 through 15. I, I encourage you to do so. But here's why this matters. If what we're saying is correct, and you couple that with what Paul says here to the Corinthians, we know that if our earthly, if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. God's purpose has not been for us to be trapped in this earthly dwelling, but God's purpose from before the beginning was that we would do away with our earthly tents so that we could go live in our heavenly home. That's what God wants. That's why this matters. It's because our life is not about here. Our life is about what happens after this life. Look with me here, verse 6 through 8. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For if we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. Our goal should be not here. I don't know how to stress that enough other than to repeat it over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, we are eternal. And brothers and sisters, we spend entirely too much time looking at the temporary, trying to preserve it, trying to enjoy it, trying to get more out of it. This is not our home. We sing it. I don't know that we believe it. This is not what it's about. We should want to move on. And I think if we truly understand that God never intended for this to be our home, Maybe that would help. If we understand that we were made of dust and dust disappears, why are we trying to hold on to dust? The next little section. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I've wondered many times over the years about myself, not about others, that if I truly lived for heaven, how that would change my day-to-day -day actions. If I truly had in my mind that this world was not my home and I could do away with it at any point, I don't care about it. It is merely, I, I like to describe it as a junky gas station on the long trip. That's this earth. Nobody's moving into a dirty, urine-smelling uh, gas station where it smells like, uh, I won't even get into smells. I don't want to gross anybody out. So, yeah, it, nobody gets excited about the gas stations. My wife and I plan to take our five kids to the Grand Canyon in May. Not yet 
have we planned a gas station trip. I don't get the Bucky's fanaticism. It's a gas station, people. This world is a gas station. Sure, sometimes it seems a little more like Bucky's and a little less like Marathon. But it's still a gas station. It is a temporary stop. It is a transient place that we live on for a short amount of time, but it is not what we focus on. Have you ever been in a gas station and maybe you've gone to the restroom and you see a crack in the wall or a spot or some kind of mess? Have y'all ever? I really think probably every head could be nodding in here. Which of you has ever gone and said, hey, can I, can I have your duster? There's a spider web I want to clean up for you. Have you ever done that at a gas station? Unless you work there. May anybody in here ever run back out to the truck to grab a tub of spackle and a spackle knife so that you can go fix the crack in the wall in the gas station? Why? Because it's not your home. This is not our home. This was, in, this was never intended to be our home. This is a place in which we are covered in dust. And our focus should be on the living we do here that brings the best benefit to the real home. That's where our focus should be. That's why all of this matters is because it helps us to understand that we really are, we're temporary. And nothing more. I love verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that all who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Do you see that? You no longer live for you. This life isn't about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your health. It's not about your joy. It's not about your happiness. This life is about the love we have for God and the love he has for us. That's all it is. This is merely a way in which God can show to us before we reach heaven, how much he loves us. That's what this life is. It is the stage on which God's plan was able to be displayed for all of creation so that anybody in that audience who saw the play and saw what God has done can either to get up from their seat and join God on the stage or they can stay away from him. But it is God giving us the choice. Do you want to come be a part of what I'm offering or do you want to continue to live in this transient, dust-like existence? That's why this matters. You see, I, I fear that we think God cares more about 
this body, this existence, this flesh, then he really does. I'm not saying God doesn't care if you're healthy. I'm not saying that God's not going to answer your prayers if you ask for healing. There are plenty of passages that teach that. What I am saying is that God doesn't want you to become so focused on the joys and cares of this life that you lose the reality that you're not about this life. In our Bible classes, we're studying the book of Amos. What did he, what did he constantly tell those people, the Israelites, in the book of Amos? You know, you're, you're complacent. You're sitting there on your ivory beds, eating your fruit, uh, just sitting back and relaxing and saying, oh boy, isn't life wonderful? And your hearts are disconnected from God. And God, in order to wake them up, was willing to ruin all of the joys of their life so that they could maybe turn back to him. You're telling me God cared about their joy and happiness and their comfort and their ease of life? Or did he care about their holiness because that's really what this life is about? I think we lose that when we give a little too much attention to this life and to this body and to this flesh and to this world. God wants you in heaven. That's what God cares about. And I encourage you, if, if that's not where you know with confidence that you are going, fix it. Because you are, you are contained within a mortal tent. But you are an infinite soul that has to choose whether you want to spend an eternity with God or without him. That, that's the choice God's left you with. And I certainly hope, I, I know this has been a long convoluted series of ideas and thoughts strung together in order to try to prove what is probably a essentially a pretty simple point. But I'm hoping it will erase in your mind any sort of possible misconception that life is about this. When I'm convinced that from the very dawn of creation, life has never been about this. It has always been about our relationship with him. He makes it pretty easy. If you'll come and follow him, if you'll obey him, if you'll believe him, if you'll confess him, if you will repent of a life without him, if you will commit yourself to him in baptism, he adopts you. He brings you into his family. Uh, he, he makes sure that you are cared for, that you have a home, that you are loved. He will do all that for you if you'll just commit yourself to him. Let me tell you, your alternative doesn't sound real good. If you choose to go without God, you know what you're left with? A world that will be destroyed and a body that will fail you. That's it. You're left with nothing. Choose God. If you need the invitation to get your life right to become a child of God, please come forward and let us know as we stand and sing this song. Hosanna, you're my king.
thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings.